You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. My guest today is Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. She's the author of The Grieving Brain, the surprising science of how we learn from love and loss. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Saul. Great to be here. So where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Montana in a very rural, tiny little town of about 5,000, uh, high in the Rocky Mountains near the Continental Divide, actually. So you've grown up to be this amazing researcher. Who are your earliest influences as a child and what was your dream? Ah, well, I would say my earliest influences were my parents. <laughs> uh, so my my father was a professor at this little tiny college uh, in my hometown. but And my mother was a primary school teacher in England um, who had emigrated to the U.S. And so education was clearly very important to both of them. And yeah. I think, you know, my parents really tried to instill curiosity in us or rather um, facilitate curiosity that's natural in children. Yeah. Um, and I think that has really stuck with me through my life. You know, your book, The Grieving Brain, I mean, it brings a lot to the discussion of grief and bereavement and healing. What was the motivation behind writing the book? As a psychologist, I always find it hard to identify motivations, right? There's probably more than one. And, you know, I get hung up on the how accurate it is. But I will tell you that I have known grief in my own life. So my, my mother, um, when I was 13 years old, was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And so I didn't know this then, but she was not supposed to survive the year. And so we had grief in my house. Uh, and, you know, as sort of a miracle, she lived another 13 years. But that still meant that she died when I was 26, which is still pretty young to sort of know yourself well enough to take on a whole lot of new, very strong emotions. But, you know, writing the book and the research that I began doing when I was in graduate school, when I became a clinical psychologist and also neuroscientist, that was all informed by feeling comfortable with grief. But really, the curiosity part, the scientist in me, wanted to understand the why and the how of grief. Why is it so painful? Mm. And why does it take us so long to understand, you know, that this person is is not coming back? And so I think the comfort with people who are grieving allowed me to do, you know, hundreds of interviews with people and also to put them in a neuroimaging scan and mm -hmm. sort of see the connection between what they were telling me and and how their brain was working. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something there that I remember a few days ago, I found a, a bereaving wife. Uh, she lost her husband and uh, just uh, about a week ago. I know that he's dead, but I'm expecting him to walk through the door every time. Yeah. And uh, that really hit. So yeah, when they, 
Yeah, it's so common and not something that psychology or psychiatry or even neuroscience have talked about very much. But I think there is a way to understand it if we look at at grief, at grieving from the perspective of the brain. Mm. So, you know, I can tell you that the brain can listen to two streams of information at the same time, right? So on yeah. the one hand, you have this memory that the person has died. You may have been there or you got that phone call or you were at the funeral. You know, you know the you reality know. of yeah. the situation. But at the same time, when we fall in love with someone, someone who becomes our husband or we fall in love with our baby, along with that, which gets physically encoded in our brain, along with that comes this implicit belief that I will always be there for you and you will always be there for me. And that's yeah. just, that's also reality, right? Yeah. Yes. But of course, both of these things can't be true at the same time. On the one hand, it's not that they're just out there, but there's a belief, there's this feeling, they're just out there, they're going to walk back through the door because that is who they are. Hmm. And at the same time, you know that that's not true, that you have this memory. So the fact that those two pieces of information really conflict is extremely painful. It's like understanding over and over again that they've died. You pick up your phone to text them, and then you realize, oh, I can't, huh. you know? And so it's over and over again, this wave of grief. And it's hard. It seems hard to reconcile the truth, you know, and <laughs> the memory yeah. And, yeah. and the reality and knowing that he's dead, but I know that he's a fighter and he can come back. He can walk yeah. through the door. It, yeah. It's really, that's what makes, you know, your work important. Your book has two parts. In part one is the painful loss of here, now, and close. Could you talk to us about that first part? Yeah, this is this is really utilizing um, a theory in psychology that relates to lots of different parts of psychology. Many yeah. of your readers or listeners will have heard of attachment theory. So it's just that idea I was talking about, that when we fall in love, when we bond with yeah. someone who's so close to us, and that evolutionarily, that person, our loved ones, are as important to us as food and water. We don't survive without those loved ones. You know, I've been taking care of a little baby recently, and they're completely dependent on us. Hmm. And so when we form that bond, there are several parts to it. Our brain, our attachment neurobiology yeah. comes to understand when I am bonded to this person, even when they're not here, even when I will only see them later, they're not in the now. And, and even when, you know, they're angry with me, say, for example, you're a kid and you've done something wrong and they're angry with me, we're still close. Mm. And so those are the dimensions that sort of keep us tethered together. Because I know this person loves me and because I love them, I know that we're going to try to be back together again in the here and the now feeling close. Hmm. Those are the dimensions that attachment uses. And I think the brain actually uses those in a very similar way. 
Yeah. So is that why it becomes harder, you know, to 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 heal or <laughs> Yeah. Is because of so, the attachments that become so strong that it's hard to detach to get detached a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you think about I was saying earlier how it's so difficult to imagine that they're actually gone. But, you know, we learn all sorts of information really quickly all the time, right? Grieving yeah. takes months and even years sometimes. But, you know, I teach a, a course every every semester. And when I'm teaching, you know, the students come in, they sit in particular seats in the in the classroom, and I get to know them, their personalities and their and their story and so forth. At the end of the semester, you know, when I go in the next semester to teach the course, it's not like I expect any of them to show up again, right? <laughs> There's nothing in me that says, ah, this, this student will be back in this seat where I know they should be yeah. because I'm not bonded with them. That's not the relationship. But when you are bonded to someone, all of those neurochemicals, the oxytocin and the dopamine yeah. are really keeping them in this place, in our mind, and saying they will be back in the here and now, and I will be able to feel close with them again. And so the trouble is we have a solution for when our loved ones aren't with us. Well, they're just somewhere else. You should go get them or make enough of a fuss that they come and get you. <laughs> but, you know, the trouble with death is it isn't that they're lost. They're not lost. It's that those dimensions don't exist anymore. And that is very difficult for the brain to comprehend. It's not that you need the map to find where they are. It's that there's no map anymore. Hmm. And then does the brain then create some magical thoughts? Is that yeah, part of it? It really is. One of the things that we see very typically early on when someone has experienced the death of a loved one, and for some people persisting for a long time, is what I call the would've, should've, could've thoughts. This yeah. will probably be familiar. This is the sort of, oh, if only I could have gotten them to the hospital sooner, or, oh, the doctor should have known to run this other test, or if only they would have known the train would be late, you know, whatever the Whatever the story is that the bereaved person is kind of spinning out in their head, the trouble with those thoughts mm. is that they really are magical, right? Because the reality is each of those stories ends in, and then my loved one lived, right? If I mm. could have gotten them to the hospital sooner, my loved one would have lived. Yes. But the reality is that they didn't live. And mm. that is incredibly painful. But living in this story where you're trying to sort of undo the way that reality happened to yeah. make it turn out differently, yeah. it doesn't actually help us. It actually distracts us from dealing with the current reality, the present moment we're in, which is that they're not here. And how are we going to restore a meaningful life for ourselves given that that is just true? Very painful. It takes a lot of courage to face that. Is that then what sometimes leads to complicated grief? This can be one aspect, I okay. think, of, yeah. of complicated grief. We, I think of uh, 
the term complicated grief, which commonly now gets called prolonged grief disorder. And, you know, it's been accepted into um, sort of diagnostic um, uh, uh, books. Um, But the reason I like the term complicated grief is it makes you focus on complications, right? So you have a, a sort of typical process that many of us are going through where grief changes over time. That doesn't necessarily mean it becomes easy, but it does become familiar. And for many of us, it becomes less frequent or less intense. But with complicated grief, you just don't see any change over time. And so for those individuals, it's like they're living the day after the person died, Mm. but for years. And so one of the complications can be that people are so caught up in these ruminative thoughts, you know, the sort of just keep coming back. And and the trouble with that is they're in their thoughts and not so much in the present moment. And in the present moment is where life happens, you know, where good things happen and difficult things happen and meaningful things happen. And there's love and companionship and suffering and feeling of guilt and, you know, but if you're not in the present moment, you're not really living in reality in a way that can help you to restore a life for yourself now. Hmm. So how does the brain, uh, I've suffered from complicated grief. Uh, I lost my parents when I was 12 and I ended up in a refugee camp and I yearned uh, for them. I could not see a future without them. And many times I thought of committing suicide. So the brain, does the brain take us to those dark places? How does, how can the brain help pull us out of that? (laughs) Yeah. Boy, these are big questions, aren't they? And I don't, I don't pretend that neuroscience has all of the answers. Yeah. I think that it is true that the brain can you know, the brain is the source of the complications as well as the source of the resilience, right? <laughs> it can do lots yeah. of things. So and, the brain is resilient. I mean, yeah, you can yeah. go through that place, but also yeah. the brain can generate, you know, some build some resilience and help you to bounce it. Look, I'm sitting here many yeah. years later talking to you. Yeah, But it is partly true that the brain may be having difficulty imagining a future, right? Because of the way the brain works, just as you said, feeling like, well, if this person is gone, that's not going to change. So how could my life be any different? Yeah. And I think this is partly where it's so important that we have other brains around us, that we have that social support, that we have someone near us that says, Look, I understand, I deeply understand that you can't see this right now. Mm. And I am so sorry that this is so painful, but I want you to know you can borrow my hope for a Mm. while, right? That I can see a future where you're not 12 years old and you're not in this terrible camp and you're not dealing with all of this without your parents so recently gone. And so I can see a future for yourself where you're, you know, doing a podcast at a hospice as an adult man, you know, (laughs) and you can't see that yet, but I will be here with you until we get there. Hmm. And for many people, that is the key, having someone else 
to support them, that can offer them that hope they can't see themselves, and to help them get through those difficult places until the brain can imagine a future. So you're, you're pointing, really that's powerful, the importance of another brain, another yeah. support, somebody who can help the brain look at a yeah. different possibility. And yeah. then your brain can adopt that. And Yeah. Wow. Powerful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because sometimes people hate to go to, you know, to seek counseling. Yeah. People hate to seek for help. Yeah. But once, you know, once grief cages you in, yeah. then you're in trouble. Yes, that's right. I think of it this way. When we get very stuck in the grief that feels very alone, which makes sense. You've just lost this person who's so close to you. But when you get stuck in my grief, we forget that it isn't just my grief, that there is grief, that grief is a part of the human condition. Grief is universal, that we have walked into, you know, we've waded into this huge lake of grief, but there are many other people standing in that lake with us. And so I think when we can think about, I am having grief, but that grief is being had by many, many people then seeking out those who genuinely understand. Not every therapist understands, actually, right? Sometimes yeah. it's actually your grandmother that understands or some author, right? Or some podcast host <laughs> 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 that understands what it means to be standing in that lake. And when we can think about the idea that I am a part of humans who have grief, it can start to erode that feeling of isolation and loneliness because within the suffering, it connects you to other people who understand and can stand with you. Well, that will take a little break. My guest is Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. Her book, The Grieving Brain, I would encourage you to get a copy. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Solabama. We continue our conversation. Uh, in part one, you finish it with uh, having the wisdom to know the difference. Could you talk to us about that? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges with becoming a person who has waves of grief is that those waves can hit you anytime, probably most often when you're least expecting them, right? You're driving in the car and suddenly you're in tears and, you know, it's not like something happened. You were just driving and then now you're just completely overwhelmed and you should probably pull over, you know? The difficulty with becoming a person who has strong waves of grief is what to do about it. Hmm. I mean, the reality is that you're not going to change the fact that you have waves of grief. This is something that is simply how your body, your brain reacts to the awareness of intense loss. 
But once you, you know that you are a person who has grief, you do have some choices. You can develop what I like to call a big toolkit of different ways to cope with the fact that you have these waves of grief. Mm. And so on the one hand, you know, there are moments where avoidance is perfectly appropriate. I, you know, the example of you're at your, you're, you're at your daughter's football game and, you know, or soccer game. And, and, you know, you just think to yourself, you know what, for 45 minutes, I'm going to pretend like I have not lost my husband, that her father is not dead. I'm just going to be here. I'm going to cheer for her. And I'm just going to pretend everything is fine. Hmm. That's perfectly okay. It's very appropriate in that situation to use avoidance as one of your big toolkit. Now, if that's the only strategy that you have, that's probably not going to work very well in the long run because those feelings are going to keep coming back. And so you may have other strategies. You may want to meet with other people and pray. You may want to go for a long walk by yourself. You may want to throw a cup across the room, you know, and hear it break in reality against your wall because this is so infuriating that this has happened. Yeah. You can react to having a wave of grief in lots of different ways. And this is where the wisdom comes in. I can't tell you in your life with your grief, I can't tell you what the right way is to react. Mm. And so the wisdom comes in knowing what things can I change? What things can I not change? And I just have to accept. And therefore, how do I know what to do when? What is the most skillful thing to do? And no. this takes, you know, this is, there's no right answer. And it takes a long time even for yourself to decide what is actually helping me build a more meaningful life. What skills do I need to try out? Or what skills do I need to stop using because they're not serving me? It's funny because I was going to ask you that on on Monday I visited a patient who is dying and I met the wife by the bedside and she spoke about going through this an emotional roller coaster. You know, yeah. that some moment she's fine and another moment, you know, it's just uh and she's like, How do I manage this? It's <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> yeah. It's complicated, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I often ask what has been working for you, mm. right? I think people turn to us because they feel they have no answers and often they have some experience, you know, maybe not experience with this grief, yeah. but maybe other kinds of grief or other kinds of strong emotion. How have you handled, you know, the sleeplessness of, of a newborn baby? How have you handled the terror of starting a new job? These are also very strong emotions that we have found ways to navigate, and it can be helpful to, to ask them to simply reflect on what has worked in the past for you. Mm. Mm. So we can always draw strength from the past. Yeah. How yeah. we dealt, even if this, the context might be totally different, yeah. but those resources can help us cope with the current situation. That's right. I think... You know, as we live longer and as our world is very um, medicalized, you know, so end of life is, is very often takes place out, out of sight. 
It means that we often don't have an experience with death, death of a close person, until we're, you know, in our 40s. And suddenly you're faced with this unbelievable set of feelings that you never even imagined were possible before. And you think, I can't cope with this. But the reality is you have learned to deal with other emotions, other strong emotions. And so it can at least give you a bit of a, an inkling to sort of think, well, okay, what, have I, what has worked in the past? And also to ask other people, what did you do? You know, mm. what, what worked for you? It might not be the same, but it might be worth trying. Yeah. In part two of your book, The Craving Brain, you speak about uh, the restoration of the past, present, and future. Uh, can you talk to us about that? Mm. I think one of the distinctions I find really helpful is between grief and grieving. So, you know, grief is this moment we've been talking about that comes in a wave, you yeah. know? It's, it's a noun, <laughs> so to speak. Grieving is the way that things change over time. So grieving is a verb. And the reason this is important is that grief doesn't go away in the sense that anytime you become aware of this loss that you've had, you might have a wave of grief in that moment. Uh, my, my sister is getting married in the fall, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> but I know that on that day that she and I are going to have, you know, a moment of just speechless grief because our mother isn't there and she should be there. That is how it's supposed to happen. So the important thing about making this distinction then, knowing that I lost my mother at 26 and at 49, I'm going to be having this wave of grief. Because we have grief doesn't mean there's anything wrong with our grieving. It's not that I've done something wrong, that I haven't processed something since I was 26, and that that's the reason I feel grief now. Grief is just natural. It's just the natural response. But I can say that I have restored a meaningful life, a meaningful life for me, which looks different from anybody else, but a meaningful life that incorporates the fact that I have grief, right? So that I do things, I, I have students who I mentor and that feels very meaningful. You know, I take care of this baby and that feels very meaningful. And I also have waves of grief. That's all part of it. So restoring the past, present, and future is partly coming to understand what is working for me in the present moment. How do I imagine a future for myself where, you know, I don't retire with my husband because my husband has died? What is that even going to look like? Mm. And to some degree, restoring the past has to do with continuing to evolve in your relationship with this person who's died. So the anger that I had with my mother when I was 26, when she died, I don't feel that so strongly now. I feel much more gratitude. And part of that is because I'm in my 40s. I see lots of friends whose 
who have recognized that their mothers were doing the best that they could, you know, yeah. in a way we couldn't see at 26. <laughs> <laughs> and so my relationship with my mother has evolved, even though she's, she's still gone. But the way I think about our past has changed. And that can be very healing. Well, that will take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sol Abema. We continue our conversation. Um, then what is the role of being in the present, you know, when you're dealing with grief? The present moment when you are grieving, when you are just bereft of this person, the present moment can be pretty painful. I can understand why we want to avoid the present moment because it's full of yearning and guilt and blame and anger and a lot of things we'd rather not feel. The trouble with human beings is human beings can't just turn off the negative feelings. Yeah. If you turn off the the feelings channel, you turn it off completely. It means that you feel numb, that you don't feel the good things either, right? You don't feel the love and the joy and the meaningfulness and the, you know, bittersweetness even. When you turn off the feelings channel, you can't feel anything. And many people describe, you know, I'm just going through the motions, right? I go to work. I come home, I find something to eat and I sit down and I watch television and then I go to bed. And that way of living is not acknowledging all the possibilities in the present moment. Mm. You know, when you're eating that cereal for dinner, does it taste good? Would you rather have, you know, full fat milk instead of skim milk? You know, there's all of the possibilities in that moment that when we've just shut ourselves off, that we can't experience. And it's those moments that make up a meaningful life, that make us say, you know, my neighbor is also lonely and maybe we should have dinner together. There was a period in my life where I numbed myself for years and it's like... um, a robotic existence. You just yeah. go through the the emotions. Yeah. How does the brain then help us begin to map a future without this loved one who died? I think a few things happen. Our brain does learn even when it's not intentional. So we are constantly learning about what's happening around us. And so while we may be trying to shut out the present moment, it is still being absorbed. And so, for example, you may come to understand that even though now you do the laundry and you don't put any socks in his drawer, 
your brain comes to begin to predict, ah, this is not going to happen. This is not something that I should look forward to anymore. And if we can allow the painfulness of that reality to set in, we will, it turns out, our brain will find other things that we might want to do. Hmm. And if we're not avoiding doing them, if we allow ourselves to have this new experience, even though it may not feel great, I'll give you an example. There can be, let's say, this is one I hear a lot from older couples where, say, the husband has died. And the wife says, the now widow says, I can't go out to dinner with our friends anymore. You know, we used to go out as couples and we really loved that. We really enjoyed that. And I just cannot bring myself to do it now. Well, those things that we are avoiding are often because it's painful, but sometimes it's figuring out what that painfulness is about that's helpful. So you can do an experiment with support, usually. Yeah. I'm going to try going to a restaurant with you know, these friends of mine. I'm going to let them know I might leave after 15 minutes because <laughs> I can't bear it. Uh, but when you're there, you know, the first time you're going to have all these reminders of the person who you've lost. Of course you are. Hmm. And it may not feel very good. And you come home and you think, well, why did I do that? But then if you go again, the second time you come home, you may think, well, that was really painful. But I also had never had, you know, the clam chowder before. And it was pretty good, actually, you know. So it can be both. And then you go again and you think, well, you know, I'd never heard of this book that my friend mentioned. I think I'll get that and, and, you know, give that a try. So that it's this slow upward spiral that our brain will learn there are other ways to be in the world. If I can understand how my brain works, can that help me shorten the grieving period? <laughs> <laughs> you ask the question everyone wants to know. How do I make this end? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think acceptance isn't so much that it ends, that you think, well, I won't have grief anymore now. Mm. I think acceptance is a little bit more like setting it down, knowing that you may have to pick it up again, right? But mm. setting down, yes, I am having grief and, and that's it. That's just the reaction I'm having. And it's not going to kill me. And I don't like it, but... It's because of the love that I have had. And, I, and I'm just going to set it down for a minute. That, I think, is a better description of acceptance than closure or, you know, you know recovery or, or something. <laughs> um, because we're always going to have it. Now, does understanding how the brain works help? Well, I think it helps mostly in that it makes the things that we do and think and feel more normal. So you don't have this added layer of not only am I feeling grief, but I feel like an idiot for still, you know, feeling this way. Or I, I recognize that this is because this person that I loved and who loved me is encoded in my brain forever. And while that's painful in the sense that you know they're not here, it can also feel 
comforting to know that they're physically with you in your brain. Uh, so, so a lot of it is kind of coming to understand the interpretation, the meaning mm. of, of what's happening. So what you're saying is that, um, so in a sense, closure is almost impossible, but accepting uh, is, yeah. is much more, it's much more healthier way. Is I that, think the word, I like the word please. accepting yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rather than acceptance. Acceptance sounds like you're done and dusted. You know, you've put it uh, away. Yes. Accepting is more something we do every moment, right? Sometimes yeah. better than others. But I think of it this way, you know, when a loved one dies, you've simply walked through a door into a different chapter of your life. You know things now that you never knew before. You know things about yourself that you never knew before. And that's not going to change. I, I make the, uh, I sort of make the analogy sometimes. So if I say to you, you know, when did you get over your wedding day? <laughs> you know, that's not, that doesn't make any sense, right? That's not a, that's not a question. And when did I get over the death of my child or the death of my sister? That That's not a question. It changes you. It mm. changes who you are in the world. And that can be okay that it mm. has changed you. Uh, so I think of it that way. I like that. That is beautiful. So then you finish with teaching what you have learned. What does that look like? <laughs> mm. Teaching. Teaching what you've learned yeah. through this period. <laughs> I think one of the things that is important to me is that I study grief. I may be a, quote, grief expert, but I study grief on average. You know, I study patterns in people, but you are the expert on your grief and your life, and what it means for you to have a meaningful life. That's not something that I can give advice about. I think one of the most difficult things for people to hear when they're grieving is, I know exactly how you feel. Because you don't know exactly how the person feels. You can't. You're both two different individuals. But you can listen. You can want to understand. You can give examples from your own life that might provide comfort for someone else who has maybe gotten to a different place in their own grieving. But it really is up to you. And, and to know, to have some faith that you will come to a different place in your grieving that requires sort of a blind faith. And you may have to borrow someone else's hope for a while. I feel like you've given us a masterclass. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is Dr. Mary Frances O'Connell. Please, what are your final thoughts? Mm, I guess my final thoughts are, I wrote this book because I recognized that although scientists, psychologists are doing grief research every day, that what we're learning isn't really getting into the hands of people that can use it. And so the goal was to write a book that everyone could understand, that benefited from the very careful research that's being done, but most importantly, 
to give people a reason to talk to each other. You know, oh, I was reading this book or, oh, I heard this podcast and it made me think of when I, or when you told me, that's the point is starting conversations so that we can understand each other's grief and from that, understand our own. Thank you for honoring us, your presence. Uh, really, uh, it's been a blessing just talking to you and learning from you. Thank you so much, Sol, for bringing this conversation to people. That was Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. Her book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. Please, I would encourage you to get a copy. What an amazing book. Thank you very much for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.